1939, Laura Ingalls, a flyer about as well known as Amelia Earhart at the time, flew over the Roosevelt White House. She dropped anti-Roosevelt leaflets on it. When she landed, she was arrested and had her pilot's license suspended. But her political antics were just getting off the ground. Ingalls grew up in a wealthy Brooklyn household. She's not to be confused with Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote Little House on the Prairie, though they were distant cousins. She was educated in the finest private schools in Europe and learned seven languages. She was a restless soul. For brief spells, she was a concert pianist, a ballerina, and a vaudeville dancer before she started taking flying lessons at Roosevelt Field on Long Island in the 1920s. She was the only woman in her graduating class at flight school and only the 15th woman in the United States to earn a pilot's license. She embarked on a glittering career as a stunt and race pilot, the prime challenger to Earhart's celebrity. She lived in hotel rooms near the airports so as not to be bothered with homemaking chores. She set a number of solo speed and distance records in the 1930s. In 1934, for instance, she flew from Long Island to South America, over the Andes, and back up to Long Island for a solo trip totaling 17,000 miles. If only she had stopped there, but no, she had to get into politics. In the later 1930s, as both Europe and the Pacific tilted toward war, the vast majority of Americans, as many as 95% in some polls, were ardently against getting involved. Americans were still clawing their way out of the Great Depression, and many figured they had enough problems at home. Roosevelt was just as convinced that without America's help, the world would be plunged into darkness. He spent the later 1930s gently prodding American voters and their representatives in Congress toward his point of view. Women played leading roles in the isolationist movement, arguing that they did not want their husbands and sons to go fight and die in someone else's war the way they had in World War I. They formed influential groups like the National League of Mothers and the Women's National Committee to keep the U.S. out of war. That's the one Ingalls joined. It was Women's National Committee leaflets that she dropped on the White House, violating security restrictions on the airspace. It was September 1939. Germany had just invaded Poland. Ingalls did not oppose getting involved because she had a son or husband who might be put in uniform. What she had was a deep admiration for Adolf Hitler. She was opposed to America's opposing him. In the summer of 1940, as Hitler's Blitzkrieg was racing across Europe, Ingalls went on a speaking tour for the isolationist America First Committee. She revealed herself to be flagrantly pro-Hitler, citing passages from Mein Kampf and even giving the stiff-armed salute to her crowds. The crowds liked her. What they didn't know was that she was being paid by the German government as a publicity flack. Earlier in the year, she had gone to the German embassy in Washington, D.C. to see the man who ran the Gestapo in the United States. 
He was paying her 300 a month to spread Nazi propaganda. On the road, she corresponded with the embassy. Once, when the Germans sank a British cruiser, she wrote, I could tear the skies in triumph. Heil Hitler! That summer of 1940, as Engels was Heil Hitlering around the country, Roosevelt signed the Alien Registration Act, also known as the Smith Act. It made it a crime, punishable by up to 20 years imprisonment, to advocate the overthrow of the federal or local governments. The feds used the Smith Act to begin rounding up some of the country's more vocal and visible Nazi sympathizers, of which Engels was far from the only one. She was, however, the first woman Nazi sympathizer arrested. At her trial, witnesses remembered her wearing a swastika pendant and calling Hitler a marvelous man. The prosecutor called her a missionary for the Nazi cause. She claimed that it was all a ruse. She said she'd gone to J. Edgar Hoover and offered to spy on the Nazis for the FBI. When he turned her down, she went ahead on her own, ingratiating herself at the embassy so that she could gather intelligence on Nazi activities in the United States. She admitted that she'd said and written much praise of Hitler, but only to maintain her cover, she said. Questioned about why she'd never passed any information to the FBI, she said she'd been arrested before her investigations were complete. The jury didn't buy it. It took them only an hour to convict her. She gave a grand prepared speech at her sentencing hearing. My motives were born of a burning patriotism and a high idealism, she said. She declared herself a truer patriot than those who convicted me and concluded with, I salute the Republic of the United States. Republic was right-wing code. They liked to say that they honored the Republican virtues of the Founding Fathers, but not the mongrel rabble democracy of modern times. The judge gave her eight months to two years behind bars and sent her to the District of Columbia Prison. Denied parole in October 1942, she began to act up. She continually praised Hitler as a great man and expounded on what a wonderful place this will be when Hitler takes over. She was placed in solitary confinement because her ranting and screaming so disrupted prison routine. When she tried to organize white women inmates against black ones, the white women beat her up, reportedly breaking her nose and a few ribs. She was removed to the West Virginia Federal Women's Reformatory in July 1943 and served the remainder of her sentence there before being released that October. She emerged unrepentant. She condemned the D-Day invasion in June 1944 and said that the Germans were fighting for the independence of Europe, independence from the Jews. Bravo! The following month, she was stopped in El Paso, trying to cross into Mexico. Government agents found her suitcase stuffed with pro-Nazi and pro-Japanese literature. She was turned back. She was not much heard from after that. She settled in Burbank, California, faded into obscurity, and died quietly in 1967 at the age of 73.